For our scripture reading, we turn first to Acts chapter 17. And we read about Paul's visit to the saints in Thessalonica during Paul's second missionary journey when he was with Silas. We'll read just the first ten verses of Acts 17. One thing to take note of here is the persecution that the saints experienced, that there were those who believed the gospel by the grace of God, and there were those who rejected the word and who persecuted the saints. We read in the first ten verses of Acts 17, And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they assaulted the house of Jason, but then they found that they weren't at the house of Jason. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews." And now we turn to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. In this chapter, in which he gives thanks to God, he mentions a number of subjects which he will speak about more, more so in, later on in, the, in this epistle. We... Read just the first chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus, and that's Silas, and Timotheus, and that's Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, 
making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples <clears throat> to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures this evening. And the text we consider is the last part of verse 9, and then also verse 10. How ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, to learn about the subject of missions, we turn to the Word of God. The Word of God gives us instruction about mission work. We turn to the book of Acts. That certainly is one place that we look. We study the, the mission work that's recorded in the book of Acts. But also we study with that the New Testament epistles, such as 1 Thessalonians, written early on, if not the first one of the letters, the epistles of Paul. That we study these epistles in connection with the history as it addresses the way, how Paul spoke to the saints, subjects that he brought up, that served to bring out to us what he taught them while he was there among them, what problems came up in his work, how he dealt with them. We see how he thanks God for them. Repeatedly we see that in the epistles of Paul, that he begins thanking God for them and then making a reference to a number of subjects that he will expand on a little more as you go through the letter. But you see that he thanks God for them. Thanks God for His work in them. And as we see what Paul said 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we learn. We learn about the work of missions. We learn about the the conflicts that are encountered, what to preach, and how Paul looked to God for the grace that he needed and how the power of God is evident in that there were those who turned from sin to the living and true God. And certainly that's on the forefront of this text, how astounding it is to see that man who by nature is an idolater, who's dead in trespasses and sins, that there were those who turned to God from idols, that they really did. They were serving idols, and they turned. They turned from that sin to the true God, to the living God. That was the work of God. And that's what's coming out here in this chapter, is he's bringing out this was the work of God. What God did by the, with the Spirit of God wrought in them, God's name is to be praised. And what happened when the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached? It's the Spirit that works faith by the preaching of the gospel of Christ. So we learn here about what they heard. And we can study it from that point of view. What did they hear? What did he say to them while he was there? What does he say to them in this very letter? And how it is that they turned and that others heard about it too. Others heard about the fact that they had turned. Others heard about the work of God in these Thessalonians. And Paul gives thanks to God. And so should we give thanks to God for his work. His work in our own midst and his work as we see it in elsewhere and other countries as well in mission work in our own country and in other lands, that we're to give thanks to our covenant God. We also see that there is evident in this passage and elsewhere in the epistle as well, a reference to what we often call the last things, eschatology. It is interesting to note how often it was that Paul spoke of the return of Christ. It's evident in the, the first and second Thessalonians quite a bit that there's much reference to the coming of Christ, the last things, eschatology. We see that here. And this is an example of how he brings up something here that he's going to talk about more so later on. Later on in this epistle, and also in Second Thessalonians, he talks about the coming again of Christ. The coming again of Christ who was raised from the dead and who will raise us. That we're looking for Him. We're looking for Jesus. That they were looking for God's Son to come from heaven. Jesus, the Savior, who delivered us from the wrath to come. They had turned... And they were waiting, and they were serving. They were serving the living God. Now certainly there's application then to us in a number of points of view. 
First of all, there's application here concerning what was preached to them and what is to be preached to us. Secondly, there's application here in seeing that it's God's work, the work of turning people from sin to God. There's application here in seeing our, the importance of us constantly turning from sin. And that we really, genuinely turn from sin to God. So that as we gather for worship from week to week, that we're gathering as those who are sorry for our own sin. And come to God as those who confess our own sin and are sorry and looking to God for forgiveness and looking for strength in the, in the battle of faith. It's an ongoing turning from sin to God. So that as we hear of how they turned, there's application also to us about our calling constantly to turn. And that those who genuinely have turned are serving God. They're serving God. It says that they turned to God from idols to serve. Who are we serving? That we are to serve the true God, the living God, and that it should be evident in our life that we're serving God who has saved us from our sin out of gratitude for our salvation. That we delight to serve Him. It's a joy to serve Him. And in our life, in the home, and in the workplace, and as we work in the schools, it should be evident that we are serving the true God. And lastly, to look at it from the viewpoint that we're waiting. For whom we're waiting. And the comfort in the trials of this life of knowing that Jesus is coming. For certainly that is also an important part of this text, is that this was a word of comfort to persecuted saints. We read about what happened in Thessalonica. And here Paul speaks of how they received the word of God in much affliction. Much affliction. Verse 6. And this is a word of comfort to them bringing up, mentioning the work of God in them and how they're waiting for the one who has delivered them from wrath, the wrath to come. And what a comfort in our trials that we continue to remember Jesus is coming, our Deliverer, God's Son, who will come from heaven. We consider this passage under the theme, Waiting for God's Son from Heaven. We consider the genuine turning, the patient waiting, and the joyful, the joyful service. First of all, concerning what they heard. What did these people hear? Well, undoubtedly, they heard about the true and living God. If you were talking, if I was talking and you were talking to those worshiping idols... Certainly that would bring out how important it is that we talk to them about, who, about the true God. About the God who is righteous and holy. The God who is merciful and gracious. The true God. True in distinction from the fictitious, false gods. That we talk to them about the true God and His works. 
about the living God. Bringing out that the true God is the living God. He has fellowship within Himself. Three persons, one divine being or essence that God really has fellowship within Himself and He brings us into fellowship with Him. We really have fellowship, friendship with God. He talks to us. We talk to Him. We commune with Him. We walk with Him. We walk with our God. The preaching was theocentric, as we often say, bringing out how important it is that we constantly are continue to speak about the works of God in our public preaching, in our talking about the Word in the home, as we have devotions and we read a passage, that we talk about the works of God. They heard about God and His work. The active God who turns His people. And they heard about God's Son. They heard about Jesus, the Son of God. Now, that is mentioned in what we read in Acts 17, verse 3, where it specifically summarizes, and it's good to take note of how he, the Scriptures at various places briefly summarizes what Paul said, and it says he opened and alleged that Christ must needs have suffered. He talked about the suffering of Christ and why that the Christ, the anointed one, must suffer, must needs have suffered and risen again, not for his own sins, but that brings up our own sinfulness and how that we might be reconciled to God. He suffered, he died. And that he was raised from the dead. That was central in the preaching. Was continuing to bring up the resurrection. He was raised again from, this, from the dead. And that this Jesus, Jesus, this Jesus that I preach unto you, this Jesus is the Christ. One thing that's interesting to note is how what we, the Apostles' Creed, it's an accurate summary of fundamental doctrines that the apostles preached. And the Apostles' Creed, or one like it, was used early on in the history of the church in the New Dispensation. It was used to teach those who come to us from outside the fundamental doctrines. You talk to someone like here, talking to somebody that worships idols. Well, where do you start? You wonder, where do you start with talking to such a person? The Apostles' Creed, its Trinitarian framework, and the points that it brings out accurately summarizes what was preached. We still follow that practice today. That practice has, that has been, was a long-standing practice has been brought into the Apostles' Creed. I mean, I'm sorry, brought into the Heidelberg Catechism. When we teach the doctrines in the Heidelberg Catechism, we expound the Apostles' Creed. We talk about how great our sins and miseries are. Now we're going to talk, secondly, about our deliverance. And we use the Apostles' Creed to teach those fundamental points. We do it publicly in the preaching. We do it in the catechism room. 
And we go through, what does Jesus mean? What does Christ mean? What does only begotten Son mean, our Lord? We talk about God the Father in our creation. We talk about God the Son in our redemption, and God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. The various points that are mentioned, we see that that's what was mentioned by Paul. He talked about suffering about the God, the Father. He talked about His Son, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His return. And as was already mentioned, there are a number of references to His return as judge. Well, that was, that's also in the Apostles' Creed. And that centrally important point about forgiveness. And in the Apostles' Creed, as short as it is, we mention the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting that they spoke. Those who, that the Apostles spoke about the forgiveness of sins. That those who turn to God, who confess their sins, who turn to God, that they are comforted with the truth concerning the forgiveness of sins. They heard about the God who accomplishes His purpose. Note that in the beginning of this epistle, we read that he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And then he doesn't explain it. He just goes on. So apparently they know what he means when he mentions election. Well, he's been labored. He labored there. He taught them. And that brings out the importance of speaking about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Teaching the truth concerning total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the preservation of the saints. Talking about the Spirit's work in us. How God has unconditionally chose us, Christ died for us, and the Spirit works in us and quickens us. We were dead, and He quickens us. As we say in the canons, the third and fourth head, He infuses new qualities into the will, which heretofore dead He quickens. So that when one turns from sin to God, God directs us to consider to consider the work of the spirit who works in us and turns us from sin that God infuses new qualities into the will which was dead and he quickens spiritually he raises us from the dead and then like a good tree it may bring forth the fruits of good actions that's the third and fourth head article 11 to teach that faith is a gift, that repentance is a gift. Certainly these are fundamental doctrines to be preached, along with the command to turn. So we preach the fundamental doctrines concerning salvation by grace alone. We preach the unconditional promise of God and that calling to turn the command to repent and believe. That's mentioned in the canons too. In the second head, Article 5, 
this promise together with the command to repent and believe. Bringing out how important it is as we preach the gospel to remember that we're to proclaim the promise together with the command to repent and believe. Ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God out of his good pleasure sends the gospel. Turn. Turn from idolatry. Recall what Paul said at Lystra. Turn from these vanities. I preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God. That calling to turn. Which on the one hand brings out that the preaching is to be speaking against the maintaining of false teachings and the continuing of sinful practices and the judgment on those who will not turn and to call people continually to turn. Turn from idolatry. Well, what is idolatry? Instead of or besides the one true God to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. That's idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5 speaks about covetousness as idolatry. Covetousness. We're not to be trusting in our wealth, loving money. We're not to be walking in any sin. We're to come, we are to gather for worship as those who have laid aside unfeignedly, this is the wording of the Lord's Supper form, all enmity, hatred, and envy. And we not only read that, but we have to remember that's not only before the Lord's Supper, but any time we see in ourselves enmity, sinful hatred, envy, we're to gather as those that have laid aside unfeignedly, genuinely, for real. We're to come as those that are firmly resolved to walk in true love and peace with our neighbor, with our spouse, with our family members, with our brothers and sisters in the congregation. We're to gather as those who have genuinely turned to the true and living God. Not imagining a God who doesn't punish the impenitent. And he continue on in their sin and they think, well, Christ died. And then they're going to continue on impenitently in sin and think there's going to be no judgment upon them. There's to be an ongoing turning from sin to God. We read of how these Thessalonians, by the grace of God, turned. Are you turning? The call comes to you and to me. Turn. Turn from your sin to the true and living God. Come to God with sorrow, confessing your sins. Believing that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Continue to come, looking to Him for forgiveness and deliverance not praying asking for forgiveness fully intending to do the same sin again 
but coming as one that's sincerely desiring that God would grant grace strength to fight and to glorify God in our whole life that others may see that we have turned from sin and are continuing to fight against our spiritual foes and that we're waiting for God's Son from heaven. Waiting. We turn in the second place to that. They're patiently waiting. They were waiting for Jesus, the complete Savior. Now that indicated, this is quite something too, brings out their faith, that they hear about Christ being raised from the dead, ascending into heaven, and that He's going to come again in the clouds on the last day. And then they believe that, and they're waiting for Him. They're looking for forward to the day of His coming. And you say, you believe that too. If somebody said, how is that possible? How is it possible that someone can come from heaven you really believe that? And you say, I know He will. I have no doubt that He will. None. How do you know that? Well, God says so. And I know. I know it's true. I have no doubt. God works in us faith. He turns His people. He works in us faith so that we're really waiting for Him to come from heaven. We have no doubt it's going to happen. We're expecting it. We're longing for Him to come. And that's the idea of hoping, expecting, being certain. And you know that. When we say hope in that sense, that we're hope talking about the coming of Christ, we're talking about what we're certain is going to happen. And also that we're longing for Him to come. We look forward to that day. Think of a woman waiting for her husband to come if her husband's been gone for a long time on a trip. And she's so much looking forward to his return. A woman who loves her husband is longing for him to come back. Of course, in that case, it may be that he doesn't, doesn't make it back. And he goes to glory before he gets back. But in, when we talk about the return of Christ, we have no doubt he's going to return. And we have no doubt that all of the saints will be together with Christ, with God, forever. Waiting for Him. Waiting for Jesus. Even Jesus. Waiting for His Son, for God's Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Even Jesus. Now that name Jesus brings out the idea that He's the complete Savior And the one whose God raised from the dead is going to raise you from the dead. And me. Now we know there will be those that will be still alive when Christ returns. But for those that have died and have been buried, for those that have died, there will be a resurrection of the dead. God will raise His people. Whatever may have happened to their bodies, even if it was the case that they, their bodies were burnt in a fire and they were, ashes were spread all, all over the place. God will raise His people from the dead. 
And we believe that too. That when Christ comes on that last day, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And somebody says, how is that even possible? Third, how is it possible for a body that's been, that has been corrupting, it returns to dust, gradually returns to How is that possible? We say it will happen. Jesus was raised from the dead. He's our head. He was raised from the dead, and we're sure He will raise us from the dead. And these are points He speaks of more so later on. As was mentioned, that the Apostle Paul would speak on that some more. He's coming. He's coming as judge. He mentions the coming of Christ, and he mentions the coming of wrath. We see both of those ideas in this passage. Waiting for his son from heaven, he's, Christ is coming. And then it speaks in the very end of the verse 10 about the wrath to come. The coming of Christ, the coming of wrath, the wrath to come. He's coming as judge. You can speak about the wrath coming right now and intensifying as we get close, closer to the time of our Lord's return. The judgment that comes upon the ungodly already now in this life. And also what will take place when Christ comes back. The coming of Christ and the coming of wrath, those two ideas are connected in Revelation chapter 6 when we read of the wrath of the Lamb. There we see a connection between the coming of Christ and the coming of wrath. That verse that we often quote in Revelation 6 that it says that people will say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. It's quite something. They'll say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. And note what they say. Hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? And this connection is seen also in the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. So note that he, he brings this subject up at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians and in the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. On the one hand, he speaks about the Lord Jesus who will be, shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance. See the coming of Christ and the coming of wrath. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel, who though they may hear externally what God's word says, they refuse to obey. On them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. But He also, just as He does here, 1 Thessalonians, He speaks about the coming wrath, but He says, the one whom we're longing for has delivered us, which delivered us 
from the wrath to come. Our Deliverer is coming. Jesus, the complete Savior. That's mentioned too in 2 Thessalonians. When He shall become to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And saying, it's a righteous thing to God, with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. And then what I read a moment ago. These are verses 6 through 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1. So the same idea is mentioned. The judgment to come and also the deliverance. That we know there's wrath to come. We're waiting for the God's Son, even Jesus, which delivered us. Sinners such as we, which delivered us from the wrath to come. We're waiting for Him. Patiently waiting. This was to be a great comfort for persecuted saints. We mentioned how the Thessalonians were persecuted, the believers. It's something that's brought up in 1 Thessalonians 1, and again, it's going to be brought up in more so later on in the epistle. But here, he says, you received the word in much affliction. There's comfort for us too. There will be persecution. You ever had someone speak evil of you falsely for Christ's sake? Falsely accuse you? Those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God has told us that. And of course, we know that God tells us in our persecutions we're to rejoice. We place our trust in God. We're not to return evil for evil. We're to trust in our God and look to Him for the grace that we need. Look to Him for grace so that we don't return evil for evil. We're to seek things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And in whatever kind of trials we face, whatever difficulties we're going through, whatever sorts it may be, God guides us so often to think again about the return of Christ. And you see that in yourself. How often in the different trials you face, the different difficulties you go through, that you see within yourself that in your thoughts you start turning again to Christ coming back. And that soon this life will be over. And will be our deliverance will be full. The full realization of what God has promised us will be without sin, will be with all God's people, will be with Christ. That's the one whom we're waiting for. We will be with Him. So shall we ever be with the Lord. 
The one who died for you. The one that you've heard about. You will be with Him. He's with us now. But now, in a higher sense, or we will be in a higher sense when He returns. That's amazing. And we know it's true. And when our mind is on these things, that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Psalm 34, 19. You believe that. By the grace of God, you believe that. And I believe that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. We're looking forward to the coming of Jesus, our Deliverer. We're waiting for Him. And when we're waiting for Him, that's evident in our speech. And it was evident in the first, the Thessalonians' speech. It was pretty amazing what's said about them, that they, people heard about what was happening. It says, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, but in other regions in Achaia. Also in every place your faith to God were is spread abroad. They, the Word of God sounded out from them when you're looking forward to something that you like to talk about it. Think of little children who can be so excited when they're told about something that's going to happen soon and they're looking forward to it and they like to talk about what, what's going to happen. We're so much looking forward to Christ's coming. We delight to think about it, delight to talk about it, delight to tell others about it. About Jesus, who has delivered us, which delivereth us from the wrath to come. And waiting, we're serving. Waiting doesn't mean inactivity. I like somebody that's sitting doing nothing. They're waiting for something, so they're sitting and they're not doing anything. When we talk about us waiting for God's Son from heaven, that doesn't mean that we're inactive. We're serving. We're waiting for Christ to come, and we're serving. We are serving our Lord. And that's mentioned in the text. Ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Serving Him in all of our life. Serving Him in the, in the workplace and being diligent in, in the workplace. That's another subject, but it's one of the subjects that comes up in First and Second Thessalonians. There were those that weren't working. He says in Second Thessalonians 3, there are some I hear that there are some of you who are disorderly, working not at all. You're not working at all. You're busybodies. And that, that's another subject. But that was an example of a problem that he faced on the mission field that he addressed. They were to be serving the Lord every day. They were to be serving, were to be working hard as to the Lord and not unto men. Serving the Lord. In, our, in the work day, in our six days of work, in the home, outside the home, we're to, lay, we're to be diligently doing what the Lord would have us do, living not unto ourselves, but unto Him who died and rose again. To serve Him. Now that word serve, to serve, 
has the idea of being owned or to be a slave, somebody that's owned. Well, we're not to read that from the idea of the forced service, but the idea of total belonging. When we come across that word that we're owned by Christ, our mind should be directed of the idea that we totally belong to Him. Total devotion to Him. Total submission to His will. To serve Him. Our comfort. When we say what our comfort is, our comfort is that we're not, I'm not a, my own, we say. I'm not my own. That's my only comfort in life and in death. And we talk in that Lord's Day about how He has redeemed us, our Lord. And we also say in that Lord's Day, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of our eternal life. He assures me I will live forever. You believe that? You're going to live forever? It's true. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this, our Lord says. And you say, yes, I believe. The Spirit assures me of eternal life. And He makes me sincerely willing. So I'm willing. He makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live not unto myself, but unto Him. That's what we confess. We talk about our only comfort. We say, by the grace of God, I serve I'm serving the living God, the true God. I know my God really is God. And He's delivered me. And I delight to serve Him. And we look to grace, to God for grace, to glorify Him in all of our life. That's our desire. That's our joy. That's what we want to do. We joyfully serve Him. We delight to gather together for worship. And that's an important point to bring out to people as we bear witness. The importance of gathering together. In fact, that's also mentioned in the Apostles' Creed when we speak about the Catholic Church. The Holy Catholic Church. The communion of the saints. And bring out the importance of us gathering together for worship. The importance of the church institute and the work of the church institute and membership in the church. We gather together and we're to show our love to one another. And that's also brought up in the letter about increasing in our love for others. Asking God for grace. We who serve the living God ask God to, for the grace that we may increase in our love for others. 
to show our love for God, loving one another as He has commanded us. Desiring to set forth a good example also. Paul, Paul imitated Christ. He was a sinner like we are. But he imitated Christ. And the Thessalonians imitated him. And the Thessalonians were examples for others. That be, that's mentioned in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. We're following the Lord. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. And ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia that He told them that. You are examples to all that believe in the region of Macedonia and Achaia. And others have heard about the work of God in you. And our desire is that others might see in us the work that God has wrought in us. That we may be examples to others. That others may see our love. That we love one another. That we forgive one another. That we esteem one another. That we delight to commune together and work together. That we're zealous of good works. That we want to honor the name of our God. And that we thank God for one another. I thank God for this congregation. Thank God for you. And for other churches. Thankful to God for the work of the Spirit within you and in our churches. Our sister churches and His people. Wherever they may be. May we together encourage one another. We who by the grace of God believe. We who, are, who have hope. May we encourage one another. And may we together serve the true and living God and magnify and praise His holy name as we wait for God's Son, even Jesus, who has delivered us, which delivereth us from the wrath to come. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and our Father, we are thankful, O Lord, for Thy grace and Thy mercy. O Lord, strengthen us by the Spirit of Christ to honor Thee. We fall far short of serving Thee with the zeal that we ought. We do love Thee, O Lord, our God, and we do love one another. Thou hast turned us from sin unto Thee. By Thy grace we do believe. And O Lord, we have a small beginning of the new obedience. We fall far short. Lord, strengthen us. Grant us grace. Grant us grace to work together, to esteem one another. We are thankful for this church and our churches. Lord, bless us, and may thy name be magnified. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.